Welcome to Unspoken, the podcast that highlights experiences that are all too common but very rarely discussed. I am Dr. Cloda Campbell, the wellness psychologist, and I feel very passionately about speaking the unspoken to remove the taboo and shame that so often surrounds our experiences and internal worlds. For each episode of Unspoken, I am joined by someone who would like to uncover their unspoken with us in order to help themselves, but also in order to help others. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you take something from it. Today's podcast is very kindly sponsored by Sensate. Do you struggle to relax or to switch out of fight or flight mode? If so, Sensate is your key to calm. Developed by doctors and science-backed, Sensate uses infrasonic sound wave therapy to help your body's nervous system recover from daily stresses and anxiety and to enter into a deep relaxation state. If this is something you would like to incorporate into your life, Sensate have very kindly offered unspoken listeners 10% off when using code CLODA10. Today I'm joined by Hannah, who has very bravely agreed to share her unspoken with us. Hannah's story centres around her experience of childhood sexual abuse. She courageously speaks to me today about navigating life following the trauma she endured, learning she was not alone in her suffering, and her journey to healing and to becoming the strong, resilient and incredibly inspiring woman she is today. This is an extremely powerful conversation and one that is without doubt my most widely requested topic for Unspoken, but it may be a hard listen for some. So please check out the episode show notes and my recommended supports and resources if you think you will relate to Hannah's story in any way. Hannah, welcome to Unspoken. Thank you so much for joining me today for my most requested topic ever on Unspoken. So I think it's really important to have this conversation and I'm really grateful for you being here and being willing to talk about it with me. I'd love to begin by you taking us back to the Hannah that you were before your Unspoken came into your life. Perfect. So I suppose to to start, um, I grew up in Dublin. Um, I have an amazing family. Um, I had an amazing upbringing. Um, I've always had great friends and um, fabulous relationship with my sister and Caroline and my brother Colin. Um, and I suppose before I get into, I suppose the sad part of this story, it's important to note that, um, I have a hell of a lot of happiness in my life too. And, um, you know, when I look back at my childhood, yes, there are some dark shadows, which will always be there, which I will get into now, but also I try to kind of look beyond the shadows and also remember the really, really great times and how lucky I was for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, for the kind of childhood and and upbringing that I did have. When you say there are dark shadows there, what dark shadows come to mind? Would it be okay for us to explore that? Of course. Um, so I suppose to to go back, um, I as a child um, was a victim of sexual abuse, um, and now as an adult, I am a victim of what they like to call historical sexual abuse, a term that I personally hate because I feel anything but historic. I'm 32. Um, I'm very much alive. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think of historic, I think of the, the dinosaurs and the Vikings, uh, not someone who's who's rocking around at 32. But um, in terms of, I suppose, the, the legal systems and the powers that be, um, you know, that's what my sort of category of victim is sort of pigeonholed into. Um, I was abused like, I suppose, 93% of sexual abuse victims. I was abused by somebody that was known to my family um, in an environment where I was supposed to be safe and where I thought I was safe. Um, That also adds so many layers to the how complicated this was to then, I suppose, finally come to a point where I wanted to talk about what had happened to me. I can't be too exact in terms of my ages. However, the school I was in at the time, um, there was kind of a couple of different uniforms as you sort of progressed year to year. Um, And I certainly remember wearing, um, we called it a smock, but then I also remember wearing my blue uniform at times when this abuse happened. So it certainly happened over several years. 
And these were on days where I was um, in a kind of childcare place where I was minded um, on days after school when my parents were working. And the abuse happened very regularly. And my memories are very vivid, very, very vivid. Um, I remember everything from the patterns on the curtains um, to the door handles in the room. Um, I remember how the person smelt, um, what the pe- person often was wearing. Um, I remember what I was wearing. Um, but I also remember um, feeling at the time that this is strange, but I was a child, so I didn't know what abuse was. Yeah. Um, and also I was in a place where I was supposed to be safe. Yeah. And I think when you're a child, you think you are always safe when there's an adult there. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the case. And I think the movies often portray abuse, rape and anything in, in that space, sometimes as the the dark alleyways and these strangers that you meet um, you know, coming home in a, in, a, in a taxi late at night. And of course that does happen and, and it's terrible. But as I said, 93% of child sexual abuse happens by people who are known to a family, who are in a family, who are in those safe environments, whether it is gym clubs, schools, swimming clubs, um, and they are the hard facts. The, those monsters are around us. And as children, we look up to those monsters because that's what we're conditioned to do. So naturally at the time I was a child, I didn't know what was happening to me. And so I never said anything because um, the perpetrator, I suppose the the term would be is grooming. Mm-hmm. Um, so outside of, of the physical sexual abuse, um, you know, would say things like this is okay. Um, you know, we do this kind of thing all the time and would would often kind of, you know, compliment me in terms of like, you're the best and and that kind of um, terminology, um, which is, I suppose, why I never felt the need to to say it. And just to give context, context as well, um, I always had the most incredibly open relationship with my family. Um, and to this day I do, my mom is my absolute best friend in the entire world. And that's why, again, I think it's really important. I feel it's important to speak out today because when you're a child, it doesn't matter how close the relationship you you have with your loved ones. Mm. You can be so frightened that you and confused that you even probably don't even understand what a secret is, but you're still willing to keep a secret. Yeah. Um, so anyway, spool forward, um, I leave junior school, um, I go into secondary school and it wasn't really until I was in secondary school that a light bulb moment kind of happened for me. And it was in one of those classes. I don't know what they call like the SPHE or something like that. And the, the teacher was talking about kind of indecent touching and kind of what to do if, if that was to happen. Mm. And I re- I'll never forget it sitting in that class. And kind of thinking to myself, oh, holy God, this, I'm a victim of, of abuse. What was that moment like for you, Anna? It was, it was such a strange feeling because as I said, I always knew that what had happened was weird. Okay. And as I said, I could never bring myself to talk about it. Never, ever, ever. But so you had this sense when, while it was happening that this isn't okay. I think so. And yeah. then, you know, as the years go on, um, you that became more clear but as I said I was in secondary school you know all you want to do in secondary school is fit in Mm -hmm. be popular make friends Mm -hmm. um and I certainly at that point did not feel ready to or I I, again I didn't have the words to say to explain it Mm -hmm. I mean I still was only what 13 in first year and so young it's so young um but at the same time I think you know, like there's, there's children who, you know, people, women are getting their periods from as young as 10, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. I think these kind of conversations need to happen way sooner than than they ever do. So that it's not a case that you get to be in 13 and first year in school, where it's the first time that you ever kind of have these, these Mm -hmm. thoughts or, or these conversations with the teacher. Anyway, there and then I made a decision with myself that I was going to bury this because I, A, didn't want to think about it, Mm. even though, as I said, my visions are extremely clear. 
my memory of what happened is extremely clear. Everything is very clear. Were you able to bury it then? Um, at that time, yeah, I was. And um, I don't know how. I mean, the brain is is crazy what it what it can do. It's primed to protect us. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, over the years, I've I've gone to to therapy on a number of occasions. And I remember I was in with a, a really amazing woman in, in London um, called Diana. And I was talking to her about this and she was saying, stop trying to work out and understand how you were thinking when you were a child compared to where you are now, because Mm. your kind of cognitive ability is just so different. And you're just going to stress yourself out more Mm. by trying to understand why didn't I talk? Why didn't I say something? Mm. So it almost sounds like there was a part of you that was cross or angry at yourself for not speaking out oh gotcha like uh, you go through all the motions and anger is certainly a leader um so I went through school I had great school years um as I said great friends um great memories of school um and yeah I just I completely put it on the back burner until I kind of became about 16 um and I then I don't know why but I've I've clear memories of it and, and one of my one of my best friends also as memory of me saying it Mm. I one night decided to kind of touch on it and and mention it but then I very quickly backtracked and kind of covered it up and didn't want to discuss it again was that a decision that you made like I'm going to talk about this tonight or did it just come out it kind of just came out I it obviously was got to do with the conversation that we were having in that group on that night and I felt uh, my group of best friends have been a group of best friends since we were about 13 Mm. until 33. Um, So they are like sisters. Mm. And um, yeah, I don't know why on that night I decided to say it, but I've I've stark memories of talking about it. But again, shutting it down. Do you remember how you felt in that moment disclosing this huge thing to your friends? Yeah, no, I didn't go into it in any great detail, but I, I, I remember... I certainly didn't have a relief because I didn't go into it in great detail, but I touched mm. on it. And I remember being like, no, what am I doing? Why am I saying this? Okay. No, it um, felt too much. Because again, what was I then like in transition year, probably the most impressionable years of your lives where yeah. again, all you are doing is trying to fit in. And, you know, that way I, it just, it, it, again, as I said, I backtracked because it didn't feel like the right time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, at 16, all I want to do is to fit in. But also, like I, I did when I was 13, I had made that decision not to speak about this because this person was known to my family. It was someone that was supposed to be trusted. And I just felt I was going to do more harm than good um, by speaking out. Were and you worried about what it would be like for your family to learn what had happened? I was so worried. And I knew I was scared that maybe I wouldn't be believed. Mm. I was scared that I would be given out to, um, even though I had no reason to think like that. As I said, I have an amazing relationship with my family. Um, and particularly my sister and I are like joined to the hip. And the fact that I couldn't even find the words to say to her just mm. scares me so much of how your body and your mind and your being can just be totally taken over by abuse. You can lose, you can completely lose a sense of who you are. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I always have been quite a confident person. Um, you know, I've never, ever been shy. Mm. Um, but when it came to this, I couldn't have been more shy. Um, Do you think you changed in the aftermath of what happened? Oh, completely. Absolutely. Particularly, I suppose, in the last seven, eight years of my life, which is, I suppose, what I'll I'll, I'll move on to now. Um, so I suppose, as I said, I decided to bury it at that time. Yeah. Um, and I'd never spoken to anyone about it. Um, I met my now husband when I was 16. Um, I never told him. Um, what was it like to you know did you struggle with intimacy with your friends with your boyfriend with your family and I don't just mean sexual intimacy I just mean you know closeness and hugging and what was that like for you throughout your teens do you know what I I actually didn't to be honest because I buried this so deeply Mm. and I just wasn't allowing it to kind of come up and bite me and take over my life Mm. um that came later Mm. um can you hear the protectiveness in that of what you've just said I wasn't allowing it to take over my life so that's another reason why so often we we do just push something down 
inside uh, of us. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's like a survival instinct. For sure. Um, so I kind of got through school and college um, again with not talking about it, pretending like everything was normal. Um, I'm sure there were moments where I was not normal. Um, I'm sure there were there were times where I maybe behaved oddly in certain scenarios. I definitely have memories of like friends and again, sorry if this is in any way offensive to say, but cracking like pedophile jokes mm. and me being like, that's not effing funny mm. and like snapping um, and people being like, all right, relax. Um, mm. But no one knew, mm. not that it's ever okay to crack a pedo joke, but you know what I mean? I yeah. I was always super sensitive to that kind of thing and to mm. language. Of course. Yeah. Um, and then I, as I said, my sister and I have always had an amazing relationship. We are the very best friends. My sister is simply the most gorgeous, funny, amazing woman, and now a mom of three. Mm-hmm. And straight um, after college, I moved to London. And that's also where my sister lives. Surprise, surprise, I followed her mm-hmm. um, and lived about three minutes walk. <laughs> um, and essentially, I was in London. Um, life was going really great. Um, I was starting to really get into my career. Um, I was living in a lovely apartment with my husband. A lot of my best friends had moved. Um, and yeah, the future was looking bright and it was a really exciting time in our lives. Um, but the one thing that wasn't going too great at the time was my sister's mental health. Okay. And I... She's my big sister, but like I'm as equally protective of her as she is me. And I just, I have full permission, by the way, from my sister Caroline to, to discuss what I'm discussing now. But I, um, I couldn't understand why she was so sad. I just couldn't understand it. And I sometimes felt so guilty. I was like, why would I be a better sister? Like, why can't I fix my sister? Mm. Um, and again, as I said, she's so talented, great job, incredible husband, and there just was something missing that I couldn't figure it out. Mm. Um, so one day she called me. Um, this is when I suppose it was kind of the, the peak of, of um, really her, her mental health troubles. Um, and she called me and she's like, will you please come over right now? And I was like, yep. So I ran over to her house and she opened the door and she goes, Hannah, we need to talk about something. When she phoned you, had you a sense that this was going to be something big? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, I And there's all kinds of big. I was like, she's dying. Mm. Like there's an illness and she hasn't mm. been able to tell us. Um, I, I thought of all sorts. But Did you think this? When I opened that door and she goes, we need to talk about something, straight away, I knew what it was. Oh, I just knew. Yeah. And I remember thinking, no, not her as well. I was like, no, not my sister. I'm feeling that so um, viscerally in my body. Just yeah. the shock of... Um, and I remember we went upstairs. I remember we sat in the bed in her spare bedroom. And she was like, Hannah, something happened to me as a child. And I know that it happened to you too. And I remember the two of us just sat there like sobbing. And like, I feel like we didn't even need to talk that much because in that instant, the two of us just knowing that we were both in it together was like, I don't know, that was, it was equal parts, like a relief that I had, like my sister in this with me, but Mm. also equal parts tragic that, because I knew how disgusting it was, what had happened to me, knowing that that had too happened to her. And that I think because she was four years older than me and it happened with her until she was a little bit older than with me Mm. that she unlike me was not able to bury it okay so she like don't get me wrong I had nightmares and I had moments where I thought about it Mm. and nightmares obviously you can't control Mm. but for my poor sister this lived with her every single day what was it like to have those nightmares you know, you said that for the most part, you were able to to block it out. But when those night terrors would yeah. happen, what was that experience like? It's just horrible because it's just so real. And, um, you know, you it wouldn't matter what you have on that day when those nightmares come. It's like everything just goes foggy and those visions just come back and it's so vivid. Um, but I mean... I think that day with me and my sister was sort of the first day of the rest of our lives, to be honest, um, because so much had to happen 
from there. And I suppose what was really shocking about that revelation was that I felt that my sister was then carrying this for both of us for Mm. so long. And I just couldn't even imagine how heavy that burden was. Um, And I suppose in that moment, then I kind of wanted to take that pain away from her and become, I suppose, the... I suppose the 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 leader in charge of of changing our lives and 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 not letting this person win. Um, and I suppose at that stage you had seen your sister crumble absolutely. while you were living in London, yeah. and she came to you and she said, she, "You know, you connected that day." Yeah, and you were already looking for a way to look after her and to protect her. So it makes sense that you stepped into that role. That absolutely, I I felt like I I owed it to her. I absolutely did because, I mean, everybody handles trauma in so many different ways. And there are a lot of people who probably internalize their feelings and a lot of people who externalize their feelings. Mm. And even though, as I said, we're joined at the hip, we're the best friends and we have so many similarities, we're very, very different when it comes to our emotions. Mm. I Um, wonder too, in that moment when you took on that role, I'm going to take responsibility in this. I'm going to help Caroline. I'm going to fight for us. I wonder, was it almost easier for you to, to care for her than to connect with what was happening for you in that? I'd say partially. I Mm. think to be honest with you, I was kind of still in a state of shock because bear in mind, as I said, I had been burying this for Mm. so long. So this, I had not even told Richie, my boyfriend from when I was 16. Yeah. Um, this is the first conversation that I was ever having. Yeah. But I think that's how sort of real it is that we, the moment she said it to me, it was just like a lightning bolt that I was like, right, this is it. There's no going back. Um, that I didn't even really have time to process that, oh my God, this dirty little secret that I've had all my life is not going to be a dirty little secret anymore. There was not one moment where the pair of us looked at each other or said to each other, do you know what, actually, let's not talk about this again. It was from that moment that we were like, no, this is real and we can't bury this anymore um, because it's causing too much damage now. And I'm really struck by your use of words there, this dirty little secret. Mm. Yeah. Because it's true. But one of the reasons why I'm speaking out and why I will always encourage people to speak out is because even if you don't go on the journey that followed that conversation, um, my journey that, in you know, over the course of seven years to fight for justice, by speaking out, at least you're turning that dirty little secret into their dirty little secret. And it's no longer yours because you didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. My sister didn't do anything wrong. And the five victims that we later found out through my sister and I speaking up that were at the hands of that same abuser, they did not do anything wrong. Have so, you always felt that way? Have you always known that you didn't do anything wrong? Or is that something you've had to work on? I definitely had to work on it. Um, I felt I did something wrong by not speaking. Mm. I kind of felt, what the hell is wrong with me? Like, was I a weirdo as a kid? Like, why didn't I speak? Um, so I hear in that, that sense, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine. But And it's so hard because as yeah. you said, you were a child. And, you know, it's so easy to say it now. But if you can think of that little girl that you were, mm. you know, and hold her in mind, do you still feel the same way? Do you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I sometimes like look at photos when I'm like a little kid and uh, like when I look at them I sometimes struggle to look at them because I'm like Jesus like look at her like she's only eight and that was happening to her and I feel kind of such a disconnect from the person that I am now to the person in that photograph and I mean this is something that Caroline and I have discussed so much because um Caroline is now a mum of three Mm. and two of her daughters are now at the ages that Caroline and I were when the abuse was happening yeah and so it's very confronting it's very confronting and actually when I started to go to therapy I remember the psychologist at the time as I mentioned it was this lovely lady called Diana in London she said to me that Hannah if it didn't come out now she goes I guarantee you that if you ever became a mother this would come out and this trauma would come out because Mm. your instincts to protect would run on overdrive and it would 
it would just bubble up so many feelings because I think whether or not you you suffered any abuse in your past, hopefully most people didn't. I think when you get to that stage where you are becoming a mother, you are starting to think like, how am I going to protect my child? What did my childhood look like? What would I do differently? All of that, all of those conversations. So I have no doubt that even mm. if that conversation with my sister on that bed that day didn't come up, that maybe two or three years later, you know, th- there would have been a reason for it to mm. come up. So you're with Caroline, you're sitting on the spare bed together. What happened from from here? So then Caroline and I discussed what we needed to do next. And I suppose the next thing to do was we had to tell our family and our loved ones, which was just, again, a moment I will never forget. And what, what I will was say... it like making that decision to tell them? So unbelievably hard. And I think... It, it happened quite soon after, I'd say only a couple of days. Um, I remember we we were living in London at the time. And so I remember my mom flew over from Dublin. Um, my dad was also living in London at the time because um, he, he was working there at the time. And it was it's, it's awful to think of because it's it's an unusual scenario to kind of be setting up almost like a formal meeting with mm. your family. Um, it doesn't feel natural. Um, Almost like an intervention, you know, literally. you see on TV. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as I've mentioned, we are an extremely close family. And I just knew how big a blow this was going to be. Um, it was going to be shocking. And it yeah. was shocking. Yeah. And what I will say to any victims listening to this is that I would be lying if I said, talking out and telling your loved ones is just this amazing, unbelievable explosion of relief and goodness and positivity and that everything's going to be amazing in that moment because it's not. Um, That will happen. But at the start, it is so bloody hard because your burden for so long, you are then burdening the people you love most in life with something that you have had a lot longer to kind of process. Yeah. Um, particularly if you're a victim like me, that the person was in some way known, um, that's a really, really tough situation to then be in. Um, and a lot of change has to follow. Um, but we, we spoke to our parents together and before I, before we told my parents, I, I, I told Richie, um, my, my then boyfriend at the time, which was really, really hard as well. And he was just like, what? Like, he just didn't understand, you know, how mm. can you be so close with somebody and not know something yeah. so huge? Yeah. Um, but again, the brain is, is an amazing thing and you can, you can just, you can, can bury it, which I did. Um, so Richie knew, and obviously my sister's husband knew. So we kind of had our, those sort of like knights in shining armor almost with us that were our first people that we told. Yeah. Um, and then I suppose it was to have that conversation with um, the rest of my family, um, which is a conversation that, you know what, I can barely even talk about it because it was just so hard and it's still so hard to this day. But what I will say is that from the moment we told them, we had nothing but their love, support, of course, they then had their own journey to go on and to process in terms of upset, anger, guilt, confusion, uh, shock. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone then went on their own journey, which is what I was saying, and that it's it's not easy telling people because you are hurting people. You are hurting people that love you so much. Um, and you mentioned their upset, anger, guilt. Yeah. Now that this had come up yeah. for you, after pushing it down for so long, were those emotions present for you as well? Oh, absolutely. I think when I sort of said it out loud, um, I realized really what had happened to me. Um, and I definitely, I, I still to this day have moments where I'm so angry. Um, but the thing is for me and every victim will be different. I blame one person mm. and that's the person who did it to me. I don't blame anybody else because I think the harsh reality is that no child is invincible and no child is fully protected from abuse. Unless you literally have your child locked in a room with you all day, every day, no child is safe because Mm. this abuse happens in safe environments, often places that have been vetted. Um, 
there are monsters out there and unfortunately it's a big bad world and we can't remove every monster um so I don't blame my parents I don't blame anybody else apart from that person because that person was just sheer evil um and so but that I think as well took me time to to get to that stage Mm. um and also I don't expect every victim to feel like that I can so see why a lot of victims would blame and every circumstance is so different as well I certainly didn't really feel like sort of the wool was pulled over if that made sense um I never spoke about this. There was no reason for anyone to ever think this was happening. So in that sense, I feel like there is one very much person to blame. But of course, other people in this situation may feel differently and I'm sure do blame themselves. Um, But that's not, that's unfortunately out out of, I suppose, my control. Um, But from that moment then, I started to talk to my girlfriends about it. Um, who I have to say to this day have been the most amazing support. And for some reason, I find it's so much easier to talk to my friends than I do my family. Um, And I've talked to my friends in great detail about the abuse and what happened. Whereas I I still, to this day, um, cannot really talk about the detail of the abuse with my family because I just can't hurt them with it um but my friends have been my therapists I mean I have gone to to professional help and amazing people like yourself Clodagh but my friends really I think you know when you're in a group of girls you all go through so much together whether it's heartbreaks whether it's miscarriages so much happens in 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 the life of a female and I suppose this is my my sad story, I guess. And we all are there for each other to to help each other through our own sad stories. And I'll never forget, it was one of my best friends, Clara. Um, and I remember we were sitting, I remember in my apartment in London, we were sitting outside having a glass of wine in the balcony. And, you know, I I was, I'd started my own company at this time and was kind of doing stuff on Instagram and everything like that. And I remember her turning to me and she was like, Hannah, she's like, when you feel strong enough to, she was like, you are going to be a voice for this. She was like, you are going to help people and you need to do that. She was like, you you will be like, you are going to help so many people. She was like, I know it's early days, but one day I'd love for you to be speaking out about this. And here I am now, seven years later. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it feel like to be speaking about it now? It's still so raw. Um, and as I said, there are very few people that I've talked to about this. Mm. Um, sometimes though, it's kind of a bit like public speaking. Sometimes it's easier to stand up and talk to a room of 500 people than it is four people, you know, your peers. Mm. Um, but I just think it's important. And my sister and I discussed this and we were like, if something good can come from this bad, then at least we've achieved something. Because mm. after coming out to my family about it, um, I then flew home to Dublin because I made the decision that I wanted to go to the police. Um, And one of my best friends, Kate, came with me to the police. That's a really, really horrible moment because you have to give a statement and that's the most detail you will ever have to go into about the abuse. Um, That experience is not pleasant for so many reasons. And again, I don't want to make any generalizations because I know there are some absolutely fantastic people in the police force here in Ireland um, and I've since spoken to to many police um, about my experience. Um, one is actually a, a friend's sister who I remember sent me a message on it before. And I believe in the last couple of years, there have been big steps made to ensure that there are sort of dedicated people in sort of each of the um, the stations across Ireland that should someone be coming in with a situation like mine whether it's to report sexual abuse that's happening right now as a child, rape, anything along that, that you have someone that is trained in that space. Because to be honest with you, the, the, my experience, I felt like I was talking to someone who was used to giving parking tickets and they had absolutely no, they had no empathy. Um, they had just no understanding of of how extraordinarily tough that was for me to come in. Mm. Um, one thing that I will never forget is they kept saying the perpetrator's name. And I was like, stop saying their effing name. Like, please stop. Like, you're really, really offending me. Like, you're, you're upsetting me. Can we yeah. just can we just call them person X or whatever mm. it is? 
and they were like, oh, sorry, sorry, I keep forgetting. They just said, you know, it's not their fault. They've no training. And it was clear they had no training. And that's something that, again, by speaking out today, if anyone's listening to this, that is the powers that be or, or, or you know, has, has friends who are working in the police, please have that conversation because it is so important to victims to feel like they are understood mm-hmm. um, and to feel that they know they're going to the right place. So again, just a note, I would say to any victims listening, I hope you do go forward. And if you are going to go to the police about it, what I would suggest is calling the state, your local station first, explaining that you want to come down to talk about a matter with this subject and ask them to allocate the best possible person for you to talk to at that time. Because I kind of just rocked up to the station with Mm. my friend and, you know, that way it wasn't really planned, but I didn't know what I was doing at the time. Um, So I went to the police and that was a journey in itself. Um, And then at that stage, I was then recommended to talk with TUSLA, we're a child protection agency in Ireland. Um, and again, being honest, because that's what I'm here to to, to be today. Um, that also was a horrendous experience. Okay. Um, and again, I felt like the person that I met with had no empathy. And I remember, again, my God bless Kate, my friend, she came to the police with me and she came to Tuzla with me. And I remember this lady said to me, but you've got no proof. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't have an iPhone when I was eight being sexually abused. Um, What was I supposed to do? Record it? What is anyone supposed to do? And and is that the case in Ireland that unless you're walked in on by the police and, you know, caught red handed, is that it? You just people get away with things? Uh, How else? Why? Like, I'm sure a lot of people going to Tusla are are children that have been hurt or abused. by people that maybe happened, whether it was last week or five years ago. But to have a woman actually say to my face, but you have no proof. What was it like to hear that? Just horrible, because the thing is, she was right. Um, I didn't have proof, um, but that's not the point. (laughs) The point is that I was telling my story and that I needed to be further looked into. And you said earlier on that you, when you were younger, you feared that you wouldn't be believed. Exactly. So yeah. what was it like to hear her well, say that? this system certainly didn't give me much confidence in that sense. Um, and I didn't feel like my case was important. And I was passed around from various person X to person Y. And again, I hate to generalize because I know there are amazing people who work there. Um, but the reality is there are people that shouldn't work there either and as a victim and my experience. Mm. But I think what's important to note as well is that I feel so sad for people who are in a situation like me, who don't have the support networks like I have. As I said, I brought one of my best friends in with me. At this point, I told my family, Mm. my family were supporting me. They knew I was going to these meetings. I can't imagine what it'd be like for a victim to have gone into that meeting on their own. Mm. Because I would say if that was me at that moment, I would have then said, you know what, I'm going to bury this again Mm. because this is useless. This is a waste of time. No one cares. Mm. Because that's what, until I decided to, go down the legal route, I genuinely felt like, you know what, no one, no one cares because that's the black and white of it is it's very, very difficult to prove anything unless it's happening in the here and now. And that is why they pigeonhole us into this category of historical abuse. But all is not lost. I basically, we went down the legal route Um, I had amazing, amazing lawyers, but unfortunately we came to a bit of an end of a road, um, which unfortunately a lot of historical abuse victims will come to. So in my situation, I received a letter from the DPP, which concluded that the, um, the person that I had, um, come forward to say it abused me, that from their research was not deemed to be a public risk currently. Um, what was it like to hear that? Shocking. I will never forget getting that letter, ever. I remember standing outside my apartment block on the phone to my sister, effing and blinding, and we couldn't believe it. And obviously they give you a little like note at the bottom saying, if you would like to appeal this, I was like, you can shove your appeal where the sun don't shine because this is, this is, this is, what you, this is how you treat people in Ireland. Mm. No wonder there's so many people that are suffering or not speaking out because... 
it's there it doesn't exist these processes don't exist mm. and if someone is not copus mentis in their terms but is going and committing crime are they just getting away with murder yes mm. they are because i have done a lot of research on this and i've spoken to a lot of people mm. and it feels it sounds like hmm. you feel you were just let down time and time again i First was with the police too slow with the courts I absolutely was but again my point and one of my reasons why I want to speak here today is that you should still fight for justice even though particularly here in Ireland they make it bloody hard for us Mm. you should never ever stop there are so many more doors you can knock on but the most important thing is that you are speaking out and that is going to save you in the long run and you deserve to speak out whether you get justice in the legal sense you will still get justice when people start to believe you when people start to support that conversation you have with them about it you deserve that you deserve to have your voice heard and so even though as I said the door closed on my case as such so many other doors have opened um and you know my family are having such open conversations about this now as I said I'm so able to talk to my friends about it I was with one of my best friends Emily yesterday and I was telling her that I was going to speaking to you about it and she was like yes Hannah brilliant like amazing Mm. and you know that's that's the point where I want all victims to get to is that they have that support um, and I want to be there to help people, to to advise people, to maybe suggest who, what, what order they should go in in order to speak out. Yeah. Um, because it's not easy. It's really not easy. Um, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. It was so mm-hmm. lonely. At one point, I was calling charities. Um, there's a charity here in Ireland um, that supports kind of victims of child abuse. I never thought I'd be the kid sitting in my hallway. Uh, or the adult even sitting in my my hallway calling a charity. I just mm. didn't. Um, but that's the 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 God honest truth of it. Mm. When you think back to, if you think back on your life and the impact that this has had on you, what mm. comes to mind? I think I have turned something so incredibly horrible um, into something a lot better. I because of what this person did to me, I think my life could have gone in a totally different direction. I think my sister's life could have gone in a totally different direction. But because of speaking out and by not letting this person burden us for any longer than they already did, Mm -hmm. I kind of, as I mentioned earlier, when I look at photos myself as a kid, I kind of I made a promise to that little girl in that smock or that little girl pigtail standing beside the Christmas tree. I said, you know what, Hannah, you're going to have a fucking amazing life because you deserve mm-hmm. it. And that's what I did. I've since then, I'd say I've worked harder than ever. I left my company. <clears throat> I set up my own company. Um, I didn't, maybe it's got to do with control or something, but I, I decided I wanted to work for myself. I wanted to make decisions for myself. And I wanted to give myself the best opportunity of having the happiest life. And that is so far what I have what I have done. And it's because of the support that I had along the way that I could get to that point. Mm. But I am a completely different human to who I was even eight years ago. I really am. Um, and I think I channeled this bad for something good but I still feel like I've so much more to do and more Mm. to give. And for the rest of my life, I want to help people help fellow fellow victims um, because it is such a lonely and traumatic journey. Um, You know, I I was since diagnosed with PTSD um, and that resulted in, you know, a series of, of, of really chronic panic attacks over several years. I still get them from time to time. There are so many physical, um, horrible physical moments um, in your life as a result of being an abuse victim. Mm. Um, But mentally, I was like, I'm not going to let this destroy me. I'm just not. Mm. Um, So I have fought very, very hard for that. Sitting with you, I am so struck by your strength and your resilience and just the incredible journey that you've been on to fight for justice and to look after Caroline and to make the most out of the awful circumstances that you've been through. When you think back to that Hannah in the smock 
that Hannah with the pigtails, that Hannah who sat on the bed with Carolina, she shared what she did with you that day. What advice do you wish you could give your younger self? I think the most important thing when it comes to abuse is as soon as you can identify what happened to you as being abuse, stop worrying what other people will think. That's not fair to yourself. And I know it's going to hurt other people. I know it's going to be horrible telling the people in your life, but you need to tell them because it is going to eat you up inside. And as I said, if it didn't happen to me, then it would have down the line. Um, and it certainly did at, at certain points. You you owe it to yourself to speak out. Um, I know, I know it's tough and it can maybe seem selfish of sharing your burden with other people, but that's life. Um, and I think if, oh, another important thing I feel to say is that particularly if you are a victim of something that happened in your past or as your childhood, or in your childhood, even if the perpetrator is now deceased, please still speak out. That does not matter. Um, that shame needs to be shared and mm. spoken. Um, it's not the end for you because they are no longer here. Um, because even though they're no longer here, that trauma is still very much present in your life. So please speak up, even if you can't ever, you know, as I say, get, get that justice. Something else that has really sort of helped me and that I think will be helpful to other victims is a particular book that I read, which is um, a true story. Um, it is called Above Water um, and it is written by Trish Carney or Kearney. I do apologize for, for crap pronunciation. Um, and it is her raw, honest account of abuse that she suffered. And it goes through her journey of telling her family and I could relate to it so incredibly deeply. But what I do think is so amazing about that book is that the way she tells and encapsulates that feeling and that sense of telling loved ones, I think siblings or partners or parents of victims of abuse should read that book okay. because I think they will then understand why someone might act in a certain way. Um, and it just is one of the most incredible reads that I felt. Of course, it was triggering, mm. but it also helped me to really understand what I had gone through as well. So just again, for, for any potential victims listening to this, it's called Above Water. And it's it's something that I would definitely recommend to read. Well, thank you so much for speaking so candidly and honestly about your experience, which I know takes a lot of courage to do. I can really hear that desire in you to help others. And I have no doubt that this conversation will do just that. So thank you so much for being here. Well, my pleasure. And, and thank you for, for facilitating the conversation. And um, yeah, I hope, you know, people know that they can reach out to me at any point. Where will they find you? Um, I suppose probably Instagram's the best place. So can you share your handle with us? Absolutely. So it's at Hannah CJ Saunders. It's usually fashion and beauty, but that's a fabulous distraction to all of this. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Hannah. Today's therapy segment is for you all, for we have all experienced trauma. As a psychologist, I see every single day the huge and often long-lasting impact trauma has on people. And one of the ways I can best support my clients and those I connect with is through sharing and teaching one of the most powerful and important lessons I have learned in my training, something I will now share with you. This lesson is how to ground yourself to the present moment to help you to escape flashbacks, unwanted memories, traumatic thoughts or challenging emotions. To ground you to the present moment when you feel dysregulated or like life is feeling incredibly hard. The magic with grounding techniques is that you can use them to care for yourself in any moment or in any situation and they have been found to be particularly effective for supporting those who experience PTSD, anxiety, stress, depression and dissociation or in other words when you feel disconnected or detached from yourself and the world around you. I use grounding techniques multiple times a day. For me it can be as simple as pausing to close my eyes, place my hands on my heart and my belly and using my breath and the rhythm of my chest to anchor me to the present moment. This can be when I'm feeling stressed or overwhelmed or at the end of a long day where I feel like I need to ground and soothe and calm myself. 
Another beautiful way to ground yourself is through walking barefoot in nature, or if you prefer to keep your shoes on, through pausing in a beautiful space to drink in your surroundings through your senses, through the sounds, the smells, the view, the feel of the breeze against your face. A particularly powerful grounding technique is to immerse your face, your wrists, or your entire body in ice cold water. This helps us to shift back into rest and digest when our nervous system is dysregulated so that our body slows down and we feel much calmer and grounded. One final technique I'll share with you that I personally love before practicing a grounding technique together is to play a memory game. I usually send you these around characters in a book I'm reading or a show that I'm binging on Netflix and it can be as simple as recalling the names of as many characters as I can. Give it a try. When your mind is focused on a task like this, it's hard to think of anything else. And so this is a really brilliant grounding technique. Now let's practice a grounding technique together. This is one that I teach all of my clients and that I use all the time at home myself. So give it a go and I promise you, you will reap the rewards. To begin, look around the room you are in. And as you do so, I'd like you to identify five things that you can see. These can be anything in the room around you, or if you'd like to challenge yourself, they can be five things that are blue, five things that are black. The choice is yours. Do this now as we practice this exercise together. When I look around the room that I'm in, I see a green plant. I see a grey beanie cap. I see my producer Claire. I see the microphone. And I can see my hands on my knee. Next, I want you to look around and to identify four things that you can touch. For me, I can touch the table, the softness of the feel. I can touch my jacket how the leather feels when I rub it between my fingers. I can touch the arm of the chair that I'm sitting in, the coolness of the metal against my skin. I can feel the satin of my skirt. Next, I invite you to identify three things that you can hear in the environment around you. I can hear the noise from outside. I can hear the buzz of the lights and I can hear the ticking of a clock. Move now on to identifying two things that you can smell. I can smell the perfume that I sprayed on me before coming here today. And I can smell the scent from the plants beside me. What can you smell? And finally, I'd like you to identify if there's one thing that you can taste. I can taste the chocolate that I just had. Is there anything that you can taste? This is an exercise, a grounding technique that you can use wherever you are and at any time. And the beauty of it is that it will bring you back to the present moment when you are focusing on these tasks through the use of your senses. I really hope it brings you calm. It helps you to ground and regulate yourself. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Unspoken with me, Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist. Be sure to like, subscribe and follow me at The Wellness Psychologist on Instagram if you'd like to hear more. If you identified with this topic, make sure to check out the show notes where I have listed related resources for you. I hope you find them beneficial.